We'll be back in Genesis this morning, and as we start, or as kind of we put our, our minds in a frame of mind to think about this, uh, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. Uh, I don't know how many of you have, but I've seen lots of pictures of it, and I ask myself the question, when I'm looking at the Grand Canyon, what am I seeing? Uh, it's a big hole in the ground on one hand, but what is it from? What formed the Grand Canyon? Why is it there? What made the Grand Canyon what it is? Or if you know anything about geology, and most of you would probably know more than I do about this, but you know geologists will typically tell you, for instance, that the Rocky Mountains are new mountains, that is relatively young mountains, versus the Appalachians in the eastern United States are relatively ancient or old mountains. So ancient or old, new, Grand Canyon. I'm just thinking as we look at the world around us, how did it get the way it is? Why does it look the way it does? And in our culture today, which is informed primarily through the theory of evolution, which means billions and billions of years of time for the universe and the earth, And basically a view that says the world as we know it is the product of, say, things like wind and water and what's called uniformitarianism, meaning kind of a uniform pattern through the ages that has produced the world as we know it today. So when I look at the Grand Canyon, am I seeing the fruit of wind and water and uniform processes over eons of time or as the text we're in this morning suggests, am I seeing the fruit of a cataclysmic worldwide flood instead? And you know, those two never meet, do they? A very different uh, rationale for why we see what we see or what formed the world as we know it. We've been in the flood narrative for a little bit. We've looked at Noah and we looked at the ark the last time we were in Genesis. And so we talked about things on the ark like The ark was a credible story in and of itself. That is, you could build a boat like that because ancient mariners did build boats about that same size. And it would have enough capacity to hold animals. And we'd take smaller versions of dinosaurs, not bigger ones. But we talked about the fact that the story of the ark itself, it was credible. It made sense. It wasn't fairy tale-ish. It appeared to say just what it meant to say and appeared credible. This morning we're going to be looking at the flood itself, at the flood itself. And so questions arise about the flood and the impact that a worldwide cataclysmic flood may have had on the earth as we know it. And before we get into the text, let me say a couple of things. Uh, First is this. I realized that I had a little bit of angst as I was preparing for this. And it's because if you stand up in our world today and say you believe in a young earth and a world that's shaped by the flood and Noah's ark was real, in our world, I mean, you're going to be scoffed at, laughed at, derided, on and on. You'll be, you'll be taking anything but seriously. And I realized as I was preparing to teach a friendly audience this morning, I still had this angst in my mind and it's because my mind has been shaped by the culture around us, just as all of ours have to some degree. And so to stand up in our culture and say you actually believe in the story of the flood as the formative shaping process that affects the world we have today, instead of eons of time, I mean, you open yourself up for derision. 
So what we're talking about this morning by the world is perceived of as a fairy tale and a myth at best, kind of a children's story fit mostly for children, but certainly not for rational adults. So when we come to a story like this, uh, it's, it's helpful to come with the realization that our thoughts are already informed to some degree by the culture around us that has a scoffing view towards at least this portion of the scriptures. That's one thing. Along that same line, though, you will talk to, and you probably have friends who are Christians, and I, and I mean this, they're Christians, they know Christ, but they hold to what's called an old earth view. And typically what this means is a Christian is saying two things at the same time. Evolutionary science is true. That is, the, the view that the, the world and or the universe is billions of years old, and that the world as we know it has been shaped by uniform eons of time and processes, and that death preceded man's presence on the earth. And they're trying to hold that intention at the same time with the Bible by saying, no, I believe the Bible story is credible and true, but I also believe in the theory of evolution. The problem with this is, theologically, you can't get there because you've got issues about when does man show up on the scene and when does death enter the world? Theologically, that's the key concept you just can't get past, which we're not really talking about this morning. But I can't get there. So Christians who love Christ, I'm sure, just as I do, hold a very different view of a story like Noah's Ark and the flood or how they plug that in to their understanding of the, the world and its age and the, the forces that have shaped it. I confess on the front end of this, I don't have all the answers I've read a bit of the science, but you guys know when I say we scratch the scratch on the surface, I mean we're not scratching the scratch of the scratch on the surface this morning when we talk about things like the flood, its impact on the world, and the geology and the science that's tied to all of these issues. We're, we're, we're talking about some things generally and we're going on. That's really all we can do. That's all I propose to do this morning. Uh, but this is my bottom line. When I was cringing inside, not even wanting to tell myself I was cringing at the thought of teaching this this morning, uh, and I'm asking myself, what's at stake and where do I land? At the end of the day, what can I say, what can I affirm as the, the, the rock that I can't get away from? And it was this. I can't take the story of Noah's Ark and the flood any less seriously than Jesus does or than the inspired authors of the New Testament do. Does that make sense? Jesus quotes the flood narrative to make points, and he points to them as real people in the past, real events. And of course, Peter, we can't take Peter's two epistles seriously if the flood's not true either. So however we see this at the end of the day, we can't take this story any less seriously or literally than Jesus did or the other inspired writers of the New Testament. Because if we do, if we jettison the flood story, then we're jettisoning the New Testament that references it as well. So we've got to be careful in the end how we treat the story. We can't afford to treat it any less seriously than Jesus and the other New Testament writers did. So we're in Genesis 7. We'll start at verse 11. We'll bounce immediately to verse 17. And then we're reading through chapter 8, verse 19. So it's somewhat of a lengthy passage. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, 
all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, that is about 22 and a half feet, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he, that is God, blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Chapter 8, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark and God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. And by the way, just briefly here, you remember we said that the term ark used in this story is only used again in Exodus where it mentions Moses in a basket, that is the same word ark on the surface of the water. The, the first audience, the Jews, would have recognized the tie between this story and Moses, when this says, uh, the, sorry, God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Does that ring any bells for you, for Jews later? Uh, that the Spirit of God blows the Red Sea apart and the Jews pass through on dry land. It's the same thought here. We understand the first audience would see a connection to the deliverance God gave them later. Verse 2, also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So this would mean, remember the ark has draft, a certain amount of it is underwater, so it hits these mountains and rests, but the mountains still aren't visible because the mountain tops are below the draft line on the boat. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. He sent out a raven and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him in the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. 
Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And, and by the way, these phrases go right back to the original creation account which God wants the earth populated. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. So just a synopsis, we've got 40 days of rain and subterranean upheaval. We've got 150 days of flooding waters. We've got months of waiting as the waters slowly recede. We've got birds sent out for signs of land and life. We've got a year and 10 days in the boat. And then we're setting foot onto the surface of a, of a new world. This is really, it's quite a story. This would be a, a great science fiction if it wasn't in the Bible. It's a great story. I want to spend most of our time just on the physical elements of the flood, just some of the issues that I see, both with the flood itself and then with how, with how that information informs us as we think about the way the world looks today. So first, in chapter 7, verse 11, it said, The fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. The fountains of the great deep and the floodgates of the sky. And the question is, what does that mean? Fountains? of the great deep, floodgates of the sky. First related to the sky, back in Genesis 1, verse 6 through 8, in the creation account, you guys remember on day one, the earth is, is formless and void. Um, it's a watery mass over which the Spirit of God is hovering. And one of the things God does in the formative period of the earth is, in verse 6 He says, Let an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse. He separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. So in the original creation, you've got this picture where the earth is this watery mass, and part of the early formative process God goes through is to take water and remove it from the earth and raise it up into the atmosphere. Now you guys know today, I mean, there's moisture in the air. We get rain, clouds form, etc. There's moisture in the air. My assumption on this, though, is that probably before the flood, there was a much larger amount of moisture in the air. You know, the warmer areas, the more moisture it can hold. So if you go, you know, in winter, we have humidifiers in our house because the cold air can only hold so much moisture. We want a little bit more moisture in the air because we're more comfortable. Things shrink less. If the earth pre-flood was a warmer environment, it could have held a much greater amount of moisture in the air. So my suspicion is when we're talking about the floodgates of the sky, pre-flood, we probably didn't have ice caps. We probably had a uniform temperature around the globe, much warmer atmosphere, holding a much greater amount of moisture. So you guys know if we see a heavy rain, a real downpour, it's amazing. It's overwhelming. Just a year ago, we had about a foot of rain in a day, and it's overwhelming. This flood, though, would have been qualitatively different because you would have been talking about an amount of available moisture in the air that's far greater than we would have today. 
So when it says floodgates of the heavens, I'm assuming that that excessive, what would be to us excessive, huge amount of moisture in the air was released. So we don't just have a normal pour or even a downpour. We've got volumes of water available in the sky that we simply don't have today. Then also we've got this fountains of the deep. And most guys, most Christians who hold what's called a young earth view believe this simply means that besides the oceans that were on the earth in those times, that there was also water locked beneath the crust of the earth. There were subterranean wells. We have wells of water in the earth today, but not like this. So that when it says the fountains of the deep are released also, we assume that God probably cracks the earth as a excuse me, the surface of the earth, and he releases these subterranean volumes of water as well. So what you would have had was unbelievable amounts of water coming down from the atmosphere and unbelievable waters coming up from underneath the surface of the earth. So when we think of heavy rains and we think we've seen something like the flood, I don't think we have. And even though we've got flooding in the States today, I don't think this there's no resemblance to the kind of water, the vast quantity of water that was being dumped on the surface of the earth at the same time from above and from below. <clears throat> One of the questions this raises, uh, chapter 7, verse 19 says, The water prevailed so that all the high mountains of the earth were covered. Uh, think about this today. Is there enough water on the earth to cover all the earth? And is there enough water on the earth to cover, say, Mount Everest? I think it's 27 or 28,000 feet tall, something like that. Is there enough volume of, the, of water on the earth today to cover the whole earth? And is there enough volume to cover the mountains? And on the first scale, yes, there's more than enough water on the earth today to cover the entire surface of the globe. And you guys know the earth is primarily covered with water. We're about three-quarters of the surface of the earth is covered by water now. So there's no problem with volume, a volume of water great enough to cover the entire globe. It's there. Then the question becomes, uh, is there enough water to cover the highest mountains? And two things on this. Related to the volume of water, you remember that we look at mountains, you know, and whether it's the Rockies, 14,000, or the Himalayas, 27,000, 28,000. You know, we've got uh, valleys of equal size under the ocean, right? We've got five-mile deep oceans. So when we're talking about the surface being covered by water, we don't just have water at some uniform depth. We've got mountain depths, if you will, of water in the sea. But also, we don't know how tall the mountains were before the flood. And, And think about this for just a minute. The suspicion is that when this is talking about subterranean waters being released, it's assumed that the tectonic plates on the earth were moving during this flood, that we weren't just getting water coming, but that the surface of the earth itself was shifting and moving. So Mount Everest may have been 28,000 feet during the flood, or it may have been significantly shorter. We don't know what the surface of the earth looked like before the flood. And with the subterranean uh, water being released and the surface of the earth moving, the mountains as we know them, the plains as we know them, the valleys as we know them, have probably all been affected by the huge shifts that would have been taking place on the earth at this same time. 
On one hand, you'd have the displacement of soil by the flood waters, but on the other, you'd have literally the shifting of the earth plates themselves at the same time. So there's enough water to cover the earth, and there's enough water to cover the mountains, whatever height they were or weren't, before the flood began. I've mentioned Mount St. Helens before, but you know, in 1980, I happened to be just north of this volcano when it exploded. Um, Mount St. Helens has been a boon to people who hold a biblical worldview related to creation and a younger age of the earth than is supposed otherwise because we got the chance to see a cataclysmic event happen before our eyes, and then we got to see what happened afterwards. So and there's, a lot, there's a wealth of information on this, by the way. The, the explosion of the volcano, it, it, nuclear bombs are nothing compared to the, the impact of one volcano. This was, and Mount St. Helens isn't even considered a large volcano. The, the power of this one volcano exploding far exceeded any of the expectations scientists had about what this would look like. And the displacement of the side of the mountain and the mudslides that came and Spirit Lake that came down the mountain with it, you had this huge, far, uh, far in excess of what was expected, displacement, physical displacement just from the volcano exploding. But then after it exploded the reshaping process of the water that came over the mudslides, uh, it reformed these surfaces so fast that if you went to Mount St. Helens today and didn't know that it happened just 28 years ago, based on the way we typically look at geography, we would assume Mount St. Helens was far, far, far older than it really is because the erosion of the water that immediately followed the explosion carved and reshaped that surface in ways scientists did not think would happen. So in Mount St. Helens, we've got, it basically was a living experiment for us to see today, and it gave us a glimpse that was far beyond our expectation about the power and the force of explosions and land movement and water in reshaping the environment as we knew it. So when we look at the earth today, my suspicion is that it does not remotely resemble the world that Adam and Eve knew from the original creation, that it has been drastically altered by the forces of the earth physically moving as well as by the floodwaters themselves. Also think of this, uh, kids love fossils, you know, and uh, the United States has great fossil beds. If you go to Dinosaur Monument in Colorado, uh, matter of fact, Kansas has turned up some huge, immense, world-famous fossils as well. Wyoming has huge fossil beds. In China, they're excavating fossils today, these rich fossil beds in China as well. Uh, Fossils are fascinating, but what is a fossil? It's a plant or it's an animal that's been preserved in the earth. And you say, well, why has it been preserved? You know, if my, if my dog dies and I put my dog in the backyard, what happens to my dog? You know, it desiccates, dries out, deteriorates. Maybe other animals eat it, whatever. It does not turn into a fossil. So what creates fossils? You know, a plant or an animal has to be rapidly covered by large amounts of sediment so that it's crushed and it's encased in lots of sediment under lots of pressure without air. That's what creates fossils. 
And I love this. If you go to Dinosaur Monument or if you go into Wyoming, we've got fossil beds here in the States, just a day's drive away or so, where we've got hundreds, literally, and thousands of dinosaurs buried together in mass graves. And just drive to Colorado or Wyoming. You can see them. You can see parts of them anyway. What in the world happened that hundreds and thousands of living creatures were buried at the same time in the same place under the same conditions so that they were all fossilized in the same event? What could explain something forceful enough moving enough sediment in a period of time that living animals were at the same time in the same place covered, covered in earth and sediment sufficient to make them into fossils instead of just decaying and desiccating as they normally would otherwise. Well, you know, the flood narrative is a pretty good source for an explanation for that. It has to be a flood or something along that lines, or, or you simply would not see the fossil beds we have in the world today. Fossils are the result of animals and plants being rapidly covered by large amounts of sediment. So it's consistent with the world as we know it today. Either, either with the available water on the earth or the, the physical appearance, I'm thinking again of the Grand Canyon. When I see pictures of the Grand Canyon or when I look at the Rocky Mountains or the Appalachian, am I seeing the result of eons of time of uniform processes of wind and water and mindless, purposeless, natural forces at work? Or am I seeing the effect of a cataclysmic flood God records in the Scriptures and the way it reshaped the earth so that it is as we see it today? You know, later at the end of the flood narrative, you remember when God tells Noah, when you see the rainbow in the sky, I want you to remember this. I'm making a covenant with you, which we'll look at later. But God told Noah, the rainbow is a sign to you of a promise I'm making to you and your descendants. But I think we should take that same mentality when we look at the world around us. If I see pictures of the Grand Canyon, if I look at the Flint Hills or the topography of the Midwest or other parts of the world, I think we should bring that same mindset and say, I'm looking at a reminder, I'm looking at evidence that the creator of the universe fulfilled his word once upon a time and flooded the world as we knew it, as our ancestors knew it. He kept his word. And the earth, as Peter says, the earth as it existed, it was changed forever. So that what we're, we're looking at in those fossils and in the mountains we see in the valleys and the topography as we know it is really like the rainbow. It's a reminder that God kept his word, that he flooded the earth and that he saved Noah and his family. It changes the way we think of the world around us. So the story of the flood is, from my perspective, it's entirely credible. You don't have to leave rationality or your good senses to believe that the story of the flood really occurred. It really happened. And we can look at the physical world around us and say, there's evidence for the flood in the earth today. On a more personal scale, uh, on a more personal scale. Did you notice that uh, when the flood waters came in, they destroyed all of life? And by the way, the text says this repeatedly. All of life that wasn't in the ark, it was destroyed. If it breathed, it, it died in the flood. In, in its totality, life on the earth 
died. But what effect did the flood waters that killed everything else, what effect did they have on those in the ark? I love this image. And just picture, here's the earth and here's one boat, one big boat. And the waters come. And let's say even before they come, when Noah gets in, the earth's dry, they're in the ark, life's on the earth, life's in the ark, everything's the same, it's all good. The waters start flooding. There's a little bit of water on the earth. People are still alive on the earth. And in the ark, they're still in the ark, everything's fine. But what happens when the waters keep rising and rising and rising? The waters that destroy all of life on the earth only raise those in the ark up off the ground. The waters that destroy everything else have no impact on those in the ark. All the waters of God's judgment do for those in the ark is lift them up. Does this make sense? This is a graphic picture for me. I'm thinking in my life today, things that would otherwise destroy me in God's economy, in God's hand, they don't destroy me. In fact, they don't even have the power to destroy me. They just lift me up. They raise me up. If you're in the ark that is Christ, and we talked about this last time when we talked about the boat itself, if you're in the ark that is Christ through faith, terrible things that happen in the world around you that would destroy others can't destroy you. The impact they have in God's hand is to raise you up. They have no ultimate ability to destroy you. You know, the worst thing that can happen for a Christian, the worst thing is that we die and go to heaven. You know, if you're a Christian under Nazi Germany or you're a Christian in the era of persecution or you're a Christian in China today and you suffer death for Christ, your time on the earth is over. And I don't mean to belittle this at all. My wife doesn't like it when I talk about dying, (laughs) leaving her, as it were. But what's the worst thing that can happen? You die and you go to heaven. You go where there's no pain, suffering. You're face to face with Christ who is life itself. The floodwaters that destroyed everything else had absolutely no destructive impact on Noah and the family. The floodwaters that destroyed everyone and everything else simply raised them up. And the trials that God allows in your life and mine have no ultimate ability to harm us. God takes those things, He transforms them, and He raises us up. He uses them for us, not against us. They don't destroy us. Notice uh, also verse 9 in chapter 8. I love this. Um, Commentators love this too. You know, when Noah sent out that raven, that raven's a big bird. It's a carrion bird. So Noah sends it out, and the the raven, it doesn't care if there's land or not. You know, there's probably carcasses still floating on the the water. Well, that raven, it can fly, and it can sit on a carcass and eat for a while and take off and keep doing it until the waters abate, but not that dove. So when Noah sends out the dove, and it's looking for a place to land, you know, a new world for a place that it can live, it doesn't find one. What does it do? It comes back to Noah at the ark. And, And notice the description of Noah with the dove. It says, Noah put out his hand 
and took her, personal, it's not it, took her, the dove, and brought her into the ark to himself. This is really, this is the tenderest language in this story of destruction and upheaval. Noah cares about this little dove. And when the dove comes back because there's no place for it, Noah puts out his hand, took her, brought her into the ark to himself. And guys, the deal is this. God takes better care of us than Noah did the dove. And you know, oftentimes when we're in trials or when we feel like our life's being turned upside down or floodwaters of whatever are coming in, don't we tend to feel like we're all on our own and woe is me and God doesn't know or God doesn't care? Well, Noah's care for this dove is a picture of God's care for us. And God hasn't forgotten us. And just like Noah with the dove, God puts out His hand and He takes us in and He brings us to Himself. You guys know pain, challenges, trials have a way of bringing us closer to God that nothing else does. Now, I love good times. I love blue skies, green lights, good food. But the truth is, you know, there's more life than that. And all of us go through periods of trial and floods and judgments. And it's painful. But the truth is, when we're in it, we can ask God this, Lord, how do you mean to bring me closer to you through this? Because that's what Noah did with the dove. And I understand that this is meant to be a picture to us of God's care for us in our trials as well. We're not isolated on our own, but God brings us closer to himself when we're in the midst of those trials. Ask God, God, how do you want me to grow closer to you in the midst of what's going on? And along that same line, in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. Now, when you hear this, if you think this means God forgot Noah, and then he remembered, oh yeah, Noah's down there. No, that's not what it, it means. The Hebrew term for remember here is only used in relation to a covenant relationship. So when we read this, it doesn't mean God had forgotten Noah in the flood, and now he says, oh yeah, there's Noah. This means God is keeping track of his promise. So when it says God remembered Noah, it's telling you, you can count on God because he keeps his promises. And you remember... God had told Noah, I'm going to flood the earth. I'm going to destroy all life, but I'm going to preserve you. So when we read verse 1, we're meant to take comfort from this. God remembered Noah as a way saying God never forgot His promise to Noah. When all Noah could see was the floodwaters of God's judgment, Noah wasn't forgotten. And guys, imagine this. We talked about life for a year and ten days in a manure pile. I think I'd feel forgotten, you know, and I'd wonder if, uh, you know, God started this thing. Does he remember I'm here and is he going to get me out of it in the end? Whatever difficulties we face in life, our tendency really is to think God's checked out and he did forget us. Or sometimes we think he doesn't care. Well, the dove reminds us God really does care. And like the dove and Noah, he brings him into himself. But this verse reminds us God never forgets us. He can't forget us. And He never forgets His promises. He always keeps His promises. 
So this verse is a way of telling Noah and telling us, God never forgets you, no matter what's going on and no matter how distant God seems. And, and by the way, I don't mean to say in any of this, suffering can have the effect of making us feel isolated and forgotten. And I don't mean to diminish the, the reality of the pain and the distance that suffering can have. But the truth is, we're not forgotten. And the promises God made to us, He still keeps. So in the midst of whatever trials I'm in today, I know that I'm in a covenant with God. And if you've trusted Christ, you're in a covenant with God, a new covenant, Jesus said. Jeremiah said, God would make a new covenant. That's what we're in. So when I'm in trials and I'm tempted to think God's forgotten me or forsaken me, I need to remember Genesis 8, verse 1. God remembers His covenant promises. And God's promised me and you things like this. Eternal life here and now. I have eternal life. You have eternal life in Christ here and now. That Jesus Christ will never leave me and He'll never forsake me. That's a promise under a covenant God has made to me and to you. Or that He will use every event in life to raise me up or for my good. Romans 8, 28. So in the midst of our trials or sufferings, Genesis 8.1 reminds us God keeps the promises He's made to us. He never forgets them. The last thing is this. Um, Noah didn't leave the ark until God told him to. Did you notice that at the end of the story? It's a little head-scratching. Uh, because it says Noah looked out and he saw that the land was dry, but he doesn't leave the ark. In fact, it's almost two months later. He's still in the floating zoo, or it's on, it's on land now, but he hasn't left the ark for almost two months. I'm scratching my head thinking, I'd have that door open, I'd be out of there. It's almost two months later before Noah leaves the ark. And why does he wait two more months? He waits until God tells him to leave. So remember, for Noah, God told him when to go into the ark. Do you remember that? God closed the door securely behind him. And Noah waits until God tells him, time's up, it's time to leave. He doesn't leave prematurely. And it would have looked okay to leave because it says the earth was dry. God apparently knew something Noah didn't. It wasn't dry enough or maybe it was still mucky and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't fit yet for the animals to get out. Perhaps they would have been harmed. I'm not sure. But Noah didn't leave, even though it looked like he could have, until God says, Noah, it's time to leave. I love this. You know, most of us live lives of what I call pain management. That is, we, we avoid pain. So we make decisions in our life, not necessarily because they're the wisest or the best, but because we're trying to avoid pain. And when we get into situations that are challenging... Uh, painful, uh, typically our first response is we want to get out of them because we want to get away from that pain. We want to manage pain, pain avoidance. I think Noah wanted out of the ark and he would have been glad to go anytime. But he waited until God said the time is up. The time is right now to leave. And I just think this is one last good reminder that when we're going through any kind of period of trial, Be careful about making your game plan to get out of that trial or that difficulty. But instead, ask God, Lord, you show me 
when it's time to leave. Guys, this could be a job. It could be school. It could be any challenging element of your life. And, and we go through phases of these, of course, depending on what stage of life we are, how old we are, what our responsibilities are. But you'll be faced time after time with situations you just like to get out of. But you know, the truth is we need to ask God, Lord, is it your time for me to get out of this situation? Because remember, God causes or allows everything that happens in your life. He's omnipotent. It can't happen in your life if He doesn't cause it or allow it. So when you find yourself in a difficulty, ask God, Lord, when is this time up? When is this trial over for me? When is it time for you to open the ark door and for me to start some new phase of life? But be careful of trying to cut those times short because you'll miss what God wants for you. You know, jello's not right until it sets up. You know, it's got to have so much time in the fridge before it goes from soup to, to jello. You can get a handle on it, you know. And God wants jello instead of soup, I guess. So anyway, be careful. <laughs> Did you like that, Jess? Yeah. That was spur of the moment. Could you tell? No, I didn't plan that. Uh, anyway, be careful about trying to get out of the trials in life before God wants you out. So two things out of this flood story. One, when you see the physical world around you, remember that God keeps His promises. He said He'd destroy the earth as it then existed, and He did. He says He did it by a worldwide flood that reshaped the world as we know it today. But then also remember that Noah and God's interaction with Noah and the ark, Noah's interaction with the dove even, are reminders to us we're never forgotten. God always exercises this tender care to us, just like Noah did with the dove. God's in a covenant with us at the price of His Son. He keeps those promises He's made to us. And we need to be careful about trying to extricate ourselves before God wants us out of those challenging phases of life. Let's pray. Lord, your word is more real and more alive uh, than, really, than anything else on the earth, than your spirit. Lord, help us to be quick to believe what you say and slow to absorb the opinions of men, men like us, men of clay, fragile minds that appear on the earth for a moment, live and die, just like all those folks on the earth before the flood. Lord, thanks that you've given us not only explanations of why the world is as it is today, but Lord, reminders of your covenant-keeping, of your promise-keeping quality, and of the fact that even in the stormiest days of life, Lord, you're with us, we're not forgotten, you're caring for us in the difficult times. And Lord, just like Noah, you're actually preparing for us even now a new heaven and a new earth. And just like Noah stepping out of that ark, Lord, one day through death or through your return to the earth, we will step with you into that new heaven and new earth where righteousness lives. Lord, until then, we say, help us to be faithful to you here and now. And also, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.